Uh, we have been in a series on John, and uh, we're uh, finished up John chapter 12 and moving towards John chapter 13. Not today, though. Um, and, and honestly, this has happened before. I missed you before. Um, I um, studied ahead, knowing about this trip, kind of got everything together. And it just at one point, I just felt like I'm not ready. It's just not ready. There's something more. And so I want to talk about something else that kind of ties in. And I mentioned it a little earlier, but I'm going to I want to talk about uh, Psalm 32. Now, Psalm 32 is a psalm that many people think is uh, connected with Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David talks about this sin that he was involved with with, with Bathsheba. And, you know, we think, oh, what kind of, it's a, it's a sin. <laughs> Murder is involved and, and adultery is involved and just, just terrible things, terrible things that David has done. And in Psalm 51, he lays it all before the Lord. And in Psalm 32, this is called a, uh, it'll say it's called a maskal, which is a song that is about meditation. It's a song where you stop and you think and you, and you, and you think through things. And so it seems to have been written later, but a lot of it connects, especially in word usage, connects with, with uh, Psalm 51. So we think that they're connected. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 32. And uh, you can just follow along. If you, you can follow along if you have it with your Bible or your phone, but uh, it won't be on the screens. So here we go. Psalm 32, Psalm of David, a mask. Blessed is he or she whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whom, whose spirit is no deceit. When I, fell, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So we have this psalm here that David, and he starts off by talking about being blessed. Now, Psalm 1, which is kind of the introduction to the whole book of Psalm, spends some time on what this blessedness is. And, and this blessedness is kind of hard in a sense. Blessed is not easy to translate. The, uh, the uh, Hebrew word esher, it kind of means happy. That's kind of the trite way of saying it. But it has more this idea. It's in the plural form, so it's this idea of blessedness. And it's not quite happiness, it's, it's joy, and yet it's comfort, and yet it's security, um, um, it's, a, it's a contentment. It seems to be connected with the Hebrew word shalom, which typically is translated peace, but has this idea of, of, a, of a right standing with God, and uh, this kind of relationship that is complete and is working and whole with the Lord. And so we have this meaning all wrapped up in here when he says this, and and uh, this idea that it's a maskal, it's, it's a, a psalm of meditation, of contemplation. And I think this is important, especially in our age, and here's why. Um, reading a little bit, 
and it was a few weeks ago, I was reading in uh, Psychology Today, and, and they had a number of articles. And one of the things one of the articles was talking about is how more and more in our culture, in our world, people, uh, psychologists are seeing people who are experiencing this sense, um, kind of this sense of judgment, a sense of guilt, a sense of regret. It's, always, it's not always very specific. You know, I mean, have you ever had that where you just say, I don't know exactly what's wrong, but I just feel, ugh. Like something's hanging over me. They say depression is on the rise in our culture, and all of these types of things that may flow out of that. It's something people can't always put their finger on. But one guy wrote, he said his patient looked at him and he said, I'm not good enough. And another said, if people knew the real me, they would reject me. See, it's something typically that people, they want to get rid of it. They want to ignore it. Rather, rather than sometimes trying to figure out why they feel that way. Rather than thinking, and this is something they tend to shy away from, rather than thinking, maybe you feel guilty because you're guilty. Maybe that's it. It's telling you something. I, uh, I've read a, a number, I like to read. I've read a number of books, some that um, were sometimes disturbing almost. Franz Kafka can be... Um, somewhat of a disturbing author. He's like a modern-day Ecclesiastes. He has these themes of guilt and these themes of meaninglessness and, and uh, worthlessness. In one of his books, Metamorphosis, he talked about this man named Gregor and his life being dominated by guilt and disappointment. And he said in the book, even kind of what I say, sometimes it's hard to figure out what it is, but I just feel guilty. I just feel guilty. And so we have that going on all around us. We have it sometimes in our own lives. So how can I reach the blessedness that this biblical writer is talking about? And he's going to address this very issue in this psalm. I want you to see first, the first point coming from the beginning is, is the blessedness in verses 1 and 2. And here it is. I know I'm rereading it, but that's good for us. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. So he's saying here, he's saying, this is what you're looking for. This is what we are looking for. This blessedness that God says he has for us. And here he's saying, and he's saying something very specific here. He's saying, first of all, blessed is he whose transgressions are covered. Transgressions are forgiven. So he uses this word, transgressions, uh, the Hebrew is peshah. And it has this idea of someone who's gone the other way. Someone who's seen this is what's right. I rebel against it, and I go this way. That's what that word transgressions mean. It's a rebellion against God. This ties right in in Psalm 51 when David, faced with his sin, said, God, I sinned against you. Doesn't mean he didn't sin against Uriah. It doesn't mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba. But he's realizing something. I'm sinning against you. That's important for us to remember sometimes. I'm not just against my, it's not just against my morals. It's not just against another person. I've sinned against God. So he says the transgressions are forgiven. Then in verse one, he says, whose sins are covered. Now that word sin is, is a very specific word, chata which means to fall short of the mark. 
it's, it's a, it's a uh, you, you may have heard this oftentimes people describe it. It's used in archery for someone who does not hit the bullseye. What happens? They fall short of the mark, maybe slightly short, maybe a whole bunch short, but not on the mark, not where they're supposed to be. And then in verse 2, he says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. He uses a different word. Now he uses hawan. This is this idea of, of, of a corruptedness, a twistedness, a crookedness within us. This, this is this idea of something. It's not a specific thing I've done wrong. It's that I'm wrong. I have this in me. It kind of goes in with that. If people knew the real me, they would be horrified. If people knew the real me, they would reject me, who I am deep inside, what I think about deep inside. So he has three, three words there, three different words, two, two different words for sin, one for transgression. Now he uses three different words, and we'll see this, for how God deals with him. Look at this. He says, first of all, the person whose transgressions are forgiven. Now that word literally means to lift off, to take a burden off of someone that they have been carrying. He's saying your transgressions, you're carrying them. This is what uh, David kind of meant when, when, when he talks about this in this psalm where he says, it's just, it's just weighing on me like the summer heat. It saps my strength. I don't know if you've ever done this. I, uh, and man, God bless you to all you Boy Scouts out there. I had a difficult time, the Boy Scouts and I, um, when I was young. And after two months, the Boy Scouts recommended that I find something else to do with my time rather than be a Boy Scout. Yes, I am. I got kicked out of Boy Scouts. I got kicked out of Boy Scouts. Yeah. Mm. I look back on that. It weighs on me. And um, one of the things that happened was we went on this hike. So we go on this hike, and we're supposed to camp for the night, right? The first thing is they wouldn't let me use a hatchet. I was very upset about that because I wanted to make a fire, just like I'd always done when I'm on my camping trips with my parents. And they say, you have not qualified. To make, to, and I'm like, what's the qualification here? Uh, I got it. Do I get it? You know, right? So they wouldn't. Plus, I had to carry all this stuff in my backpack. And, and, I, and I was just, you know, younger and, and a beginner. And it was so flipping heavy. And, uh, and it was a hot day. And so I'm sweating like crazy. And after a while, I'm just trudging along going, this is not what I signed up for. You know, like, like some new person in the army. This is not what I signed up for. And um, this, uh, this older guy, just a great guy, he was an Eagle Scout, right? And he says, hey, man, let me, carry your, let me carry your pack for a little bit. And I'm just a young punk. And so I just said, sure, you know, here, thanks, sucker. And, and, and then, have you ever experienced, it's like, oh, Ah, oh, I feel like I can fly. I, they just took like 40 pounds off my back. I'm like, yeah, let's dance. You know, I'm going down the trail, just happy as a clam. This is this idea that those, this incredible weight that has been laid upon you is lifted, and you feel like you can fly. He says, this is, this is the first one I want you to see. They're, you're, they're forgiven. They're forgiven. Um, this is that idea that they have been removed. In Psalm 103, he says this, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has, our, ha, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So you think about this, as far as the east is from the west, well, how far are they apart? Well, it's just infinity. I mean, it's, you go, keep going one way, the other way is still just as far away. You can't ever reach it. You don't ever reach east. You don't ever reach west. You can reach north, and you can reach south. 
but you never reach east or west. And he says, that's how far. You'll never see them again. And he says, they, they've been lifted off the earth. And then he says, your transgressions are forgiven. Your sins are covered. Now, this is a reference to that idea of the Day of Atonement when the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, on the lid of the ark. And, and uh, the lid was between the law inside and God above. And the lid, the blood, it, it covered. It covered the broken law, shielding us from being judged. Now, in the New Testament, we have a much more uh, perfect uh, covering. The blood of Christ covers us. There's no need of this yearly sacrifice that they had before. But we are covered by the blood of Christ. And so he says, blessed is the one whose sins are covered. And then... In verse 2, the other thing he says is, whose sins are not counted, they do not count against them. Now, this is the idea of bookkeeping. This is the idea of keeping track. I've shared this before, I know. Um, my dad, one time when I was little, not too little, but when I was younger, and I just said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I really screwed that up. And he said, this is the eighth time you've done it. When do you think? you're going to get around to changing. And all of a sudden, it hit me as a kid. He keeps track. He's keeping track. It's like he's got a ledger, and it's my name with dates next to it and what I've done. And so he goes, eight, eight so far. And I, that was a, I just was like, oh, I'll never live up to him. I'll never. We have a God who does not keep track. He doesn't write on a ledger. He doesn't sit there and go, I'm sick of you doing this over and over and over and coming to me and asking for forgiveness. He doesn't. He's glad we come to him and ask for forgiveness. And so he says there's, their sins are not counted. They're not counted. And so he's saying here that what he values and if you look at, uh, look at the end of verse 2, he said, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. What is he saying? That we have this open and honest relationship between each other. There's no deceit here. There's no hiding. There's no pretending. You're honest with God. Isn't that a funny thing sometimes, that we think we can hide something from God? It's like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, my daughter's stealing the candy bar and eating it, and chocolate's all over her face, and she's saying, I didn't eat it. And I'm like, you're cute, but man, I don't know if you're smart. You just, you just got chocolate all over you. I can, just, I can see it. I, I'm, I can see it. I have the better view here. And do you ever think that that's, that's how it is with God with us? We, if we try to hide something, God's going, man, I love you, but you're dumb. You know, I don't I think God says that, but uh, yeah, but he, he, he just, you really, do you really think you're getting away with this? Do you really think, whew, I think I dodged a bullet there. God didn't say, it's amazing. So he says, blessed, this person, there's no deceit. In any relationship, in any relationship, the fulfillment of that relationship is based upon open and honest communication with each other. And God says, I want to have this relationship with you. We need open and honest communication. You can tell me anything. In fact, he's saying, you have to tell me 
anything. You have to tell me everything. Get it out. Get it out in the open. And so he's saying that sense of unease, of, of, of guilt, there may be a reason for that, and it needs to be dealt with. And he's going to kind of lead us through in terms of dealing it. First thing, I want, second thing I want you to see here is the testimony of David in this, in this uh, passage. He says in verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Selah. Selah is, uh, they think is, they're not 100% sure, but it seems to be some sort of a musical interlude or a break or a cue to musicians to, to play a certain thing at that time. So that's, it's, a, it's a musical thing because these are all meant to be sung or set to music. And so David here, we know he starts by hiding. He starts by not repenting, and it, and it wears on him. And you see here this graphic, graphic portrayal of the effects of sin in a person's life when they don't take care of it, when they don't confess and repent. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I felt all day long, ugh, I hate this. I hate where I'm at. And you know, for many times, it gets down to where we're saying, I hate myself. I hate what I do. And it's this groaning. And he says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Doing things in the, in, in the bright sunshine of a hot summer, and it just wears you away. You don't have the strength you would normally have. You don't have the endurance you would normally have. You don't have the ability to do stuff that you would normally have. And David is here is just brilliantly writing this out um, and giving, helping us to see the effects of what's going on here. He connects these feelings of guilt and condemnation with God. And he, see, he, he says, it's killing me. It's killing me. You know, when Adam and Eve first sinned, the first thing they felt were, was shame. They were ashamed of their nakedness and they covered up. And that's what we do. We cover up our sins. We hide them. We don't want anybody to know. We don't want God to know. You ever have, I always hesitate to say these kind of things. You ever have uh, one of those, uh, you ever have those nightmares where you find yourself in school without any pants on or something like that? You know, do you ever have those? No, <laughs> man, now I feel bad. Nobody, nobody's like, yeah, everybody's going, what is he talking about? Um, well, I do still. Although pastors, okay, pastors have their own pastoral version of that nightmare, right? They're up here, and all of a sudden they go, we need a bigger, we need a big, we need a big thing here. I, you know, I hope no one notices I forgot to wear my pants. And that's that, that sense of, of, of I, I want to I cover up. I feel ashamed. Now, I want to hesitate to say, no, I don't want to hesitate to say this. Feeling ashamed sometimes can be a very tricky thing because sometimes shame is legitimate and sometimes it's not. Sometimes shame comes from suffering. Oftentimes people who have been abused feel shame. It has nothing to do with you that you were abused. And that's misplaced shame. But we all have a sense of judgment that comes from our separation from God when we are experiencing that separation and the realization 
that God is trying to break through that. David here is describing this guilt, the shame he's feeling because he hid his sin. And this guilt he's feeling, the Holy Spirit uses in our lives to guide us, to push us to repentance. I remember um, my family, none of us were Christians when we were growing up, and one of my older brothers went off to college and, and he got saved. He became a Christian and he came home and he was telling us about it. And so I saw him talk to my mom and I saw him talk to my dad and I thought, oh, great, you know, I'm next. And so he went, came and he talked to me. I remember we were sitting on a bed in the bedroom and he was talking to me about this relationship with Jesus Christ because we've sinned, we've all broken the law. And I was like, well, what, what laws have we broken? And he talked about, like he said, let's just take the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God, have nothing before him. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, dude, I put lots. God wasn't on my top 100 at that time. So there wasn't a big, uh, maybe that. And he, then he talked about this idea of honoring your parents, this idea that there's an authority in your life and your honor, you to honor and respect them. And um, I really thought my job was to go against everything they said and get away with as much as I could. And I was like, oh, man, I'm blowing it on that one. So then he started talking about coveting, that is, wanting what others had and getting it by any means possible. And that's what I thought was fun, actually, not a sin. I thought that could be a lot of fun. And then he talked about adultery and not just the act, but the fantasizing and desiring of, of adultery. And I remember I kept thinking, hurry up and get to murder. I think I'm safe on that one, right? So if you just get to murder, I'm going to get a plus in my category. So he got to murder, and he said, it's not just murder. It's hating someone and desiring them to be harmed. And I was like, darn it, I'm 0 for 10 on this thing. And I, I mean, I don't care how much of, much of a curve there is in the grading. If you're 0 for 10, you did not pass, right? You just didn't. And, and David is saying here, he's saying, look, this, this sense of guilt for what I've done that I've been trying to hide is, it's driving me to God. The Holy Spirit is using it to drive me to God. This pain and this difficulty drove me to God. And he says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. He says, it drove me to you. So I finally had to say, okay. I admit it. I confess it. He comes clean. And for each one of us, we have to own our sin to find forgiveness, to find blessedness. Now, it starts with this relationship with God at the very beginning when a person recognizes they're a sinner, sees that Jesus has come to be their Savior, died for their sins and rose from the dead, what we would call the gospel of, 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 of Jesus Christ. It starts there, but it is a process that continues of owning sin. First John talks about this. He talks about us confessing our sins so that God brings the healing into the relationship. Because what happens, even as a Christian, if we sin, that we create a wall, we create something that, 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 that's between us and God that He doesn't want. 
and confessing and owning our sins removes that wall and restores it in the way it's supposed to be. He says, my sin, my iniquity, my transgression, each one of those three words. He says, and if you read it, he says, he owned them, my sin, my transgression, my iniquity, each one of them. I always think of Adam. What did Adam, what happened when God said to Adam, what have you done? And Adam, classic, that woman you gave me, what does he do? He blames her and God. That woman you gave me, you brought her into my life. If she wasn't here, I wouldn't be wearing, I don't know how that works. That sounds weird to say. If she wasn't here, we'd be right. Everything would be fine. Way to go, God. Right? He just starts that blame game, and that is going on now. How does it, what does it look like for us? Well, maybe someone says, well, the reason I'm like this is because of the situation I'm in. I've been treated badly, and that justifies my bad actions. Or I haven't had all the privileges that other people have had. Or I've worked hard. I deserve more than I've been given. Or my spouse doesn't treat me right, so that justifies my actions. Or what I'm doing is not that bad compared to other people, compared to them. Or compared to the good things I've done. I find this happens a lot. One of the things in in reading about pastors, when pastors fall into sin, is oftentimes what begins to happen is they go, I work so hard, nobody knows what I do. Like, you're doing things and I know every bit of your life. Right? I don't, I don't know what you do either. Right? But they, oh, I work so hard, no one does this. So if I steal a little money out of the offering plate, it's justified. Because they don't pay me that great. Wah, wah, wah. Pastors can be whiners, let me tell you. It makes me so mad sometimes. Anyways, and, and they, you justify it. You justify it. Now look, I want to say this. If, if something has happened horrific in your life, it can affect your life. There's no doubt about that. But you can't keep laying the blame on that for everything you do wrong. Because oftentimes they just become excuses we use to deflect blame. And David is owning it without pointing fingers at others. He didn't say it was the woman. It wasn't that Bathsheba woman. He didn't say, well, Uriah, I didn't trust him anyways. It wasn't the circumstances. God, why'd you let me get on that rooftop? Why didn't you stop me? You know, I wasn't just hanging out with the wrong crowd. I realized this one time in my life. I wasn't just hanging out with the wrong crowd. I was the wrong crowd that people were hanging out with. And I had to own that. You know, it's been famous. You see it in movies. You see it in songs all the time. This ability. Some people claim there's a woman to blame. But I know. It's my own, don't say it, fault. Right? It's just this everywhere. This word confess is an interesting word. It means, and I think this is a beautiful way of thinking about it, it means it's the idea of seeing sin from the perspective of the person you have wronged. This is what confess is, to be able to see it from the, from the perspective of the person you have wronged, specifically God. See, not only admitting it, but changing my perspective on it. 
to the perspective of the one I have wronged. Because this brings in this thing, this idea of we begin to understand what it is to hate sin, not just to hate the consequences of sin, right? When kids are little, they're great at that. Once they realize they've been caught, then they own up because they want to avoid consequences. So people say, and we see this, right? If I've offended you, I'm sorry. Which means, I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm sorry that you're upset about it. That's not an apology. That's not confession. It's not in any way repenting. Sometimes uh, people say things that, you know, the way they phrase it, I'm sorry that you took it that way. Which is really saying, I'm sorry you're so ignorant that you can't understand what I'm saying. Or, and you get this from politicians all the time. If anyone took offense at what I said, I'm sorry. Which means most people got it and aren't offended, but you few dummies aren't. So sorry to you, idiots, you know, Pluto. You're just sorry. And, and that, you see what's happening there. You're not owning it. You're deflecting. But if we say, God, I see this from your perspective, and what I have done is wrong. I see, God, why you hate sin. Not, not just confessing when the consequences are painful, because that's not true repentance. And, and oftentimes people, they're afraid of what people will think of, of them, so they do things and, and, and they hide things, but that's not true repentance. What is God's reaction? What is God's reaction when we come to him and truly repent? We say, God, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against this person, I've sinned against this person, but God, you, I've sinned against you. How does God react? Well, we get a good picture of that in the New Testament with the story of the prodigal son. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. David said, then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And how does God react? Story of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. In each one of those, the reaction is rejoicing when the lost one is found. When we confess, when we open up, and share and talk to God and reveal ourselves. Just say, God, this is I've sinned and I know this was wrong. It's against you, God. I'm, 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 you know, I want to repent of the sin. I want to turn and go the other way. What happens? There's rejoicing. There's rejoicing. So we had the blessedness. We had the testimony of David. Now there's a warning. David gives us a warning to think about in this psalm. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, God, that you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. David is saying that, that there is t- there's, a, there's a sense of time here. Time is of the essence. It's limited. One way to look at this is to think of sin, in a sense, as a disease. If you, if you don't treat it, it gets worse and worse. 
It has to be dealt with. Paul talks about it as a root of bitterness and that it, that it grows. You know, it, Paul uses this brilliant illustration of, of, of the roots that are underground, that are unseen, and how they spread. And bitterness does that. It spreads unseen. Nobody observes it. And yet it poisons as it goes. And so now, in terms of the whole psalm, this mighty waters in this verse seem to be some idea of judgment for sin. This is, this is uh, the idea that God's, we need God's forgiveness. We need to deal with things in our lives. And then in the last phrase, he's saying here, what is our protection? The songs of deliverance that surround us. That could be translated shouts of deliverance. What is our song? What is our shout of deliverance? I think of it like this. I think a shout of deliverance is when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. To Telestai, paid in full. That's our shout of deliverance. Paid in full. Have you ever gotten a call from a debt collector? I'm not asking anyone to raise hands on this one because I have, and it's incredibly embarrassing, right? But one time, I got a call from a debt collector, and, and they were wrong. They, had, uh, they called, and they said, you've missed the last payment on your car. You, you haven't totally paid off the debt. I knew that I had um, made that last payment, and the reason I knew that I had made the last payment is I'd gotten the title. They had sent me the title. Bam, stamped on there, paid in full. Somebody's initials from from the bank. And so this person is on the phone saying, you know, we could take legal action. You know, technically, even if it's just the last payment, your car could be taken from you. Now, at that time, I had just been reading Lord of the Rings. So I think I said something. I said, be gone, thou foul collector of debts. I banish you to the evil that spawned you. I have in my hands an edict stating that you have no claim on me henceforth. I get in the Lord of Rings a little more than I should sometimes, maybe. But I mention this because God says, we have this shout now. It is finished. God uses guilt to, con- to convict of us unconfessed sin. But sometimes there's the, these internal voices that keeps saying to us, you're guilty, you're wrong. And what do we do with them? Do we argue? Do we try to ignore, which I, I, I know for a long time I tried to ignore, and it was the worst thing to do. But I think what we do is we shout at them. And what do we shout? We shout our, our, our song, our cry of deliverance. The enemy comes and says, you've messed up. You're no good. There's no hope for you now. And Jesus shouts, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy says, you have no future. And Jesus shouts, I know the plans I have for you, to give you a future and a hope, to use you for good and not evil. The enemy shouts, you're a liar. You're untrustworthy. You're a thief. You're a failure. And Jesus shouts, such were some of you, but you are washed. You are justified. You are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The way to get rid of these internal voices that whisper in our ear at time and tell us how bad we are is to drown them out with the gospel. But what do I do? 
I had somebody tell me one time, Bob, listen, that all sounds good. I know I'm forgiven. I don't feel forgiven. And sometimes I feel like I can't forgive myself. What does that mean? That means that someone's voice in your ear is louder than God's voice. Whether it's some standards that you've set up, maybe some standards that a parent set up over you that are just weighing you down. Uh, Maybe any number of things. And what we have to do is counteract that with the gospel. What does Jesus say? You're worthless. He says, no. You are worth my life. That's what you're worth to me. God has to become so weighty in our lives that his opinion of us matters more than anything else. He says, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what you need to hear. Last thing, the promise, verses 8 through 11. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. In verse verse 8, he's saying, look, uh, I'm with you now. Many are the woes of the wicked, but God's unfailing love surrounds us at all times. I'm with you now at all times. I will give you instruction and teaching. I will counsel and watch over you. And, and, and this, is, this is very intimate. Counsel and watch over is this idea of someone who's incredibly close to you. Why are they close to you? Because there's, you love them. And this is someone who loves you. He says, I will counsel you. And because of that, God... In verse 9, he's saying, I don't want you to be controlled by force. Obey because you have to. You're afraid you're going to get smashed. It's a loving relationship based on mutual love. And then the promise that comes with repentance, no matter what is going on, you are tightly held in the arms of a loving God. Why? Because of verse 11, you have been declared righteous. You have been made upright in heart. What does this do to us when we begin to let this sink in? Because I've noticed this. Oftentimes, people who have been through difficult things and seen great mercy often are so merciful with others. They've learned it, and so they share it. Paul talks about this, that we would comfort people with the comfort that we have gotten. And so is that you? Do others feel safe about their weaknesses around you? If you're aware of God's grace in your life, they will. If you're not the kind to rush to judgment, they will begin to experience the mercy that we have, that we've seen, that we've been given from God. And then this idea of vulnerability, being vulnerable around other believers. What keeps us from that? Pride keeps us from that. We worry about what other people will think. We have that idea that if somebody really knew the real me, they would reject me. Do you realize that lots and lots of people feel that? So that if you really shared the real you with a person, they would go, you too? Me too. I'm struggling with that. This is the power of us being willing to be open and honest with each other. And if we've experienced the joy of forgiveness, if we've experienced that forgiveness God promises for us, we don't mind letting people see our faults. Because 
Our happiness does not depend on maintaining some sort of an illusion that we're perfect. So then the question becomes, do you receive criticism well? Are you allowing yourself to receive those type of things? I, I say this a lot around here. I'm always willing for people to come to me and say, hey, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. I don't like the way you do this. I'm good with that. I didn't used to be so good with it. But I am now. Not that I'm asking you to test me. <laughs> oh, I'll give you some criticism. No, but I just this is how God grows us. i got to be open to that. I don't have a lock on how things are supposed to happen, how things are supposed to. I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest teacher. So i got to be willing. We have to be willing. And see, if we've received this forgiveness from God, this should not bother us. Criticism. What can they do to me? And so if you've had the experience of being deeply forgiven, you won't mind when others point things out. You won't hide behind a mask. Our hiding place is God's mercy. Knowing knowing that we are tightly held in the arms of a loving God, what else matters? Nothing. Nothing matters quite that much. And that gives us the strength to be the people that this world needs. People who show mercy. People who love. People who serve. People who listen. This is what the world needs. People who have answers. We have it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for this psalm that written 3,000 years ago, and it still touches us. It still speaks to us in the 21st century in the United States of America, right here in our culture. This is still applicable as it was 3,000 years ago in, a, in an agricultural setting and in a very simplistic setting. And Lord, your word, your word is powerful in any culture, in any language, at any time. So, Father, we thank you for this word that guides us, that challenges us. Help us, help us to um, learn, help us to learn to give our shout of deliverance to see how you see us and not how others do. And Father, in doing that, we become just bit by bit, a little bit more like your son, Jesus. And we look forward to that day when we shall see him face to face. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.